Welcome to CEU Medieval Radio. I'm Karen Culver and I'm alumna of the Cultural Heritage Studies Programme, which is part of the Department of Medieval Studies at CEU. I've long been interested in how we relate to and use our heritage, both as individuals and communities, and particularly our intangible heritage. I'm also interested in the balance between keeping our heritage alive and accepting that it changes, or preserving our heritage unchanged for future generations to learn from and enjoy. In this podcast, I will consider these questions in relation to early music, that is music before 1700. I would do this not from a theoretical standpoint, but from the perspective of a practitioner, a musician who plays early music as part of a much wider repertoire. And to do this, I'm going to meet and speak to Tom Chilton. Under normal circumstances, I would have met with Tom personally as he lives with his wife in a fine, elegant, baroque town just north of Budapest, where I live. But this podcast was recorded during a COVID lockdown in 2020. And so, like so much of our lives at the time, it was set up on a Zoom. Tom Chilton was born in Scotland, took a degree in medieval history, and then was a professional archaeologist, working mostly on medieval sites in Norway, before heading down to Central Europe in 1986 as an English teacher. Along the way, he enjoyed listening to and playing early popular music. Tom and his wife Chilla, with their band Dagda, play for a wide range of concerts, dances and events in and around Budapest. Hello, Tom. Good to see you. Hi, Karen. Tom, when we were preparing for this interview, we talked about the types of early music that you you play with Dagda. Um, You referred to it as early popular music. Can you explain this term and what is the appeal of popular music for you? I mean, there's always been popular music, but there comes a, a time in the mid-17th century when we know the kind of music that people listen to outside the church and outside the palace. So I mean, almost like say secular and non-noble music. But I, I like popular music. And then suddenly in the, around about 1650, we, we, we know what people were listening to. And it's, it's really enjoyable. Uh, the, the phrase early music, I don't really like. In Hungarian, it's called old music, which I like better because it's certainly old. Early music implies that it was an early version of classical music. So I, I, I like popular music. I like music you can dance to, you can tap your foot and sing along with. And also I like early music because I, I like early things. I like, I like old things. They're interesting. It's interesting the world was different. And this music is different. And the, 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 the titles of some of these songs are amazing. And they you know, are redolent of an earlier time. That's, that's interesting, a different way of life, a different way of looking at things. And that's maybe why also, again, the sort of late 17th century is very interesting because it's a time when the world was 
changing very rapidly. People were drinking coffee instead of getting drunk all the time. And uh, I found out, for example, that there was only the first coffee house was opened in, in England in uh, 1651. Uh, within 30 years, there were 3,000 of them. There was a, a huge boom in coffee drinking, chatting, playing music. It was a great boom in popular culture, you might say, mm, rather being led okay. by the church or by, by the aristocracy. Again, yes. it was a social, social thing at that time too, because it was the rise of the middle class as well, so that the people could, you know, people would go to concerts, go to plays and pay money to see something. You, you, composers, musicians didn't need patrons. They could make music, for, you know, provide music for a paying audience. So that was, the, so, as far as I know, the first time and place when that happened. So it really was a major period of social change. Ah, very much. Well, yes, well, certainly in, in England. Actually, I'm not English, but to be honest, it was happening around London, yeah. I mean, it's Charles II's time, the Cromwell and then the restoration of Charles. This is late 17th century, for people who don't know. Tom, we both grew up in, in the UK in the 60s, 70s, and that was a period of lots and lots of popular music. What was it that got you into old popular music rather than... Yeah, let's go. Uh, well, there really one, one group called the Incredible String Band who were from Edinburgh. There were two men from Edinburgh who looked amazing. They also dressed very well, very flamboyantly. And they, particularly Robin Williamson, they're called Robin Williamson and Mike Heron. Robin Williamson in particular wrote incredible songs. Uh, very, very eclectic with you know, pieces of Arab music. Or in, and, and one of the influences was, was old music. So I don't know if you've got time to play something. They used the harpsichords, for example, and some of the, 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 the tunes seemed like old, old, old tunes. So, that got me interested. So, I mean, I was a, a Scottish hippie, and they were Scottish hippies, so that was that was nice. They opened my eyes to different kinds of music, you might say. So, we'd mm. go, me and my friends would go off to the the woods with our guitars and uh, mandolins. And, and uh... okay, so this is a piece of music, a song by Robin Williamson, and it's called "Witch's Hat." So, here is a clip from "The Witch's Hat" by the Incredible String Band. Next week a monkey is coming to stay mm -hmm. If I was a witch's hat Sitting on her head like a paraffin stove I'd fly away and be a bat Cross the air I would roam Stepping like a tightrope walker Putting one foot after another Wearing black cherries for rings But there's also the, 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 the sort of ethos of those days, certainly in Scotland maybe especially, the idea of getting back to nature and going back in time that things before the industrial revolution were better yes and and the, 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 like a rural idyll and in fact that's um that comes even more so in a, in a record called anthems in eden which is by shirley and dolly collins and the music reflects a happier and more collective way of life actually this is the theme of, of, of folk or english folk music and, and english cultural life 
generally they're using folk music as the basis for their music. So looking back to a pre-industrial rural past, which was really like an idyll, uh, there was a guy called David Munro, who was a, we think, from the early English music concert, and he, he played early music. And he played on this record, and his, his concert also played. So it's a mixture of kind of basically folk music with, with early music. And uh, you can maybe play a track from that. This one is pleasant and delightful, an English folk song. It was pleasant and delightful on a midsummer's morn, and the green fields and the meadows were all covered in corn, and the blackbirds and thrushes sang on every green spray, and the larks they sang melodious at the dawning of the Was the idea of a past rural idyll a common theme throughout Western Europe or common throughout the UK? It was a little bit different because in, in Scotland and Ireland it was more Celtic, it was more like a, a belief in sort of fairies and, and, and uh, mystical things you might say, a bit more wishy-washy you might say too. For me personally the, the most influential band that came after that was Planksty who came in the mid-70s I guess. And, and they they sang a lot of songs. They were great musicians, and they also played music in sets. What do you mean by playing music in a set? One of the problems I have about with folk music is one of the problems with performing folk music. A ballad of twenty-four verses with a very short tune. A lot of folk tunes are only sixteen bars, which is quite short. Repeating itself is quite boring. But what Planksty did was they they would add another tune at the end. Often they'd have a song which would go, which would go into a, 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 an instrumental tune. So they'd put things together. A good example of that is the, the Raggle Taggle Gypsies is sort of a, almost like a theme song for, for that time as well, for folk musicians, musicians at that time. And it's a, really, that was a very old song from Scotland, I think, which, uh, which moves into a, into a really good tune. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a good example. You maybe hear that one, actually. In this clip, we hear the last two verses of the Raggle Taggle Gypsies and then the change into the lovely second tune. You're a what do I care for a goose feather bed With blankets drawn so calmly here Tonight I'll lie in the wahid open field And lay your hands on me raggle-taggle gypsy Oh, for you rode east when I rode west You rode high when I hear a hoodlow I'd rather have a kiss of the yellow gypsy lips Than a whole lot of cash it has money, oh
Tom, we've been talking about dates of music, um, but we know that music wasn't originally written down. It was just copied from player to player. How, yeah. how can we guess, how do we know the dates of this intangible commodity called music? How do we know the age of it? Yeah, that's, well, that's a good question. Um, in the, and again, this, the 17th century is the key, but because in, in, in the early 17th century, there were collections of lute music. And then the great landmark in, in British music is in 1651, uh, with the publication of the English Dancing Master by John Playford, who was a publisher. We guess that Playford was using tunes which have been around for a long time before, and we don't really know how long. But in some cases, we can try and get near to a date. Uh, in Scottish music, one of the, the oldest tunes we can date is the, called The Flowers of the Forest, which is a pipe tune, and it's also got words. The tune, The Flowers of the Forest, is a lament for those who fell at the Battle of Flodden in 1513. And it's pretty certain that, I imagine, it was written close to that date. For those who don't know, uh, the Battle of Flodden was part of a, of a short war between England and Scotland when a Scottish army led by James IV marched down to England under the terms of a, a deal with the French called the Old Alliance. So Scotland and, and France would gang up on England. So if, if, if France was at war with England, then Scotland would, would join in. Uh, King James of Scotland raised an army and got cannons and stuff and marched south from Edinburgh down to England and met an English army at Flodden, which is just over the border into England. And it was a massacre, the English one, uh, King James of Scotland was killed, as were many of the Scottish nobles. His body was found surrounded by the corpses of his bodyguard, and they came from the forest of Ettrick, and these arches were known as the flowers of the forest. And this song must date from 1513, I guess. It's an interesting tune. It's a pipe tune, and the first line is a pentatonic tune, and almost all early Scottish tunes are pentatonic, five-note scale. Many countries seem to think that that's unique to their folk music. Certainly lots of Scots do those. But the second line has this weird, weird note, this flattened note, which sounds really out of place, but also gives you goosebumps. If you hear this, the note, the weird notes in the second line, just whoa. Fantastic, I think. Okay, let's listen to it. So in another event, to go down south of it, another tune that we know we can date because of the events that, that it commemorates is Will Kemp's Jig. And this tune must come from 1600 because Will Kemp was a clown and he performed with the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which Shakespeare's theatre company. And he did a thing called a jig, which is part of the show. If you went to the theatre in the late 16th century, there was a jig, which was got improvised show I think unconnected to the play so you'd see heart-rending performance of Romeo and Juliet and then you'd get the, the jig that it might have a dog maybe and it seems that Will Kemp fell out with Shakespeare and the rest of his company because he was perceived as old-fashioned 
it was kind of improvisational style, kind of improvised comedy. He felt this was getting really out of date. But he was a huge uh, national hero, very popular figure. Just after he left Shakespeare's theatre company, he danced to Norwich from London, distance of 177 kilometres. And this was called the Nine Days Wonder, and that phrase has gone down into English language as a nine days wonder, a short-lived wonder. Actually, he didn't do it. He didn't do it in nine days. He danced for nine days, but he took several weeks over. He did the day, then had a week off, and another day. But huge crowds lined the route and cheered him along the way. And uh, this is supposed to be the tune he played. Actually, it was published uh, in 1651, so again, it's almost certainly was the tune he played. So Kemp's jig was, uh, in fact, recorded by and by Dagda many years ago, an early version of Dagda. This is played by Kelvin Bowne and a Hungarian guy's name, unfortunately, I don't remember, who's playing a water can, metal water can. It's an sound, kind of traditional gypsy instrument in Hungary. Illustrations, as far as I remember, of Will Kemp shown with like a drum in one hand, basically, and, and a little flute in the other. You mean it's the pipe and tabor, yeah. Yeah. We'd have you a very simple tune, though. Anything you can play with one hand is already very simple. You know, you've got three or four notes to play. There are other ways that we can, uh, we can try and date tunes, early tunes before the date at which they're published. Perhaps the most famous of these is Greensleeves, which was supposed to be uh, written by Henry VIII. It's actually definitely published in 1580, which is pretty early too, but it may not have been uh, Greensleeves. Another, the Scottish tune called The Last of Patey's Mill, which is a nice tune, and that's still used in Scottish dance sets. We, we use it for Scottish dancing, where uh, there are normally four tunes per dance, and this, this is a very popular tune, and it goes way, way, way back. And this, is, this tune was supposed to be written by David Rizzio, who was the secretary to Mary Kunis Scots, and he was like her favourite. And she was estranged from her husband, the evil Lord Darnley. And Darnley's henchman broke into the Palace of Hollywood House one night when Mary was having supper with Rizzio, held a pistol to the pregnant Mary and dragged Rizzio out into the next room and stabbed him 57 times. And there's a, there's a plaque on the floor of uh, the palace saying, David Rizzio fell here. And the joke goes, I'm not surprised I almost tripped over myself. <laughs> Mary had come from a very cultured, she was married to the Dauphin of France and her childhood was spent in very cultured circumstances. She got a bit of a shock when she came back to Scotland. Actually, she was greeted uh, when she arrived in Scotland by a very large number of Scottish musicians, Scottish fiddlers, stood outside the palace and, and serenaded her into the night. Said she was very pleased by this reception, but could she move to a room at the back of the palace to get away from <laughs> So there's music that we could date from events that we, we can date them from and supposed composers. The real breakthrough was when John Playford published his first edition of the English Dancing Master in 1651. He was a war correspondent for the Royalist side and he was captured by Cromwell's men, that's 
empowerment side. And he basically said, if you want to stay out of jail, you might want to change your profession. And they encouraged him to take up something non-political and started publishing music. I had no idea of that. Isn't it weird that yeah, were, there were war correspondents in 1650 that existed even then? It's a very, very modern time. And it makes mm. a strange time, you know? This is not the Middle Ages at all anymore. You know I mean? No, no, it really is early modern. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's the beginning yeah. of the modern world. And he published many, several editions of the English Dancing Master, and basically we loads and loads of good tunes uh, from that time. Some of them have great titles. Uh, one's called Punk's Delight. Thinking of John Playford, he, mm -hmm. he published the music. Did he also publish the dances? Yeah, there were diagrams of the, the, there were diagrams of the dances to go with the music. What's interesting, I now realised about Playford, was that he was in it for the money. So there must have been a market, there must have been an awful lot. It's called, it's called the English Dancing Master. Actually, later versions were just called the Dancing Master. This was aimed at dancing masters, people who made a living from teaching dances. I mean, that must, there must have been a lot of them to make it worthwhile publishing a book, making money out of it. There must have been an awful lot of people who could read music and who made their living from teaching dancing. So, so normally the master would also play the music. He'd have a fiddle and he would play the music and, and teach the dancers at the same time. He'd be like a one-man one man band, a one man teacher, a musician. Yet the music was written on one line. We've said in previous conversations that as far as we're aware, the music was no time scale yeah. and no... There's no tempo, there's no indication of a tempo. I think we can work out from the notes what the, what the time signature is. Also, there's not much choice. I mean, essentially in, in, in British music, it's either four, four or six, eight. So there's, you know, there's not much variety in time signatures. Tempo is the problem. I don't even know how fast they were played. A few years ago, we recorded a tune uh, from the Playford collection, and it's got it's got a great title. I think it's called "The Emperor of the Moon." Okay, let's listen to it. So we, we think that the tunes that Playford published, Playford didn't write many tunes or maybe any tunes, but we think that the tunes that he published had been around for decades or maybe centuries beforehand. And uh, in 1686, Playford published an edition of The Dancing Master, and one of the tunes in there is called The Siege of Buddha, which is quite amazing. It 
people who live in Hungary. But uh, so he presumably gave that name because it was a topical reference. Maybe it would increase sales. Oh, there's a tune about the siege of Buda, that, which happened in 1686. This was the siege where the Habsburg army besieged the Turks in, in Buda and won the battle and the Turks were sent packing. And it was a huge moment in, in the Hungarian history. And it's probably an event that, you know, people were celebrating across Western Europe. The tune was called the Siege of Buda. And it dates from the year in which the Siege of Buddha took place. Let's hear it. interested in the popular music, the folk music, but I know you well enough to see that you you also love Purcell, even referring yeah. to Purcell as funky. How come you got oh, yeah. into yeah. Ah. funky Purcell? Well, people who like early music might be a bit angry for my reason, but honestly, it's because of a film called The Draftsman's Contract, which uh, came out in uh, 1982. It was the first first feature film uh, directed by Peter Greenaway. And it's an amazing film. No one really knows what's going on, I don't think. Uh, it's set in late uh, 17th century England. It's very beautiful to look at. And the music was written by Michael Nyman. And the music is obviously borrows from Purcell, but it plays it in a much more sort of forceful manner. And lots of, I liked it, lots of other people liked it, and I thought, this, this music's all right. It's not, it's not such as wimpy, wishy-washy classroom. This music's got a bit of a uh, bit of spunk to it. It's got quite funky. And, and through, through listening to that, I started listening to Purcell. And when I saw him as, as a, a secular composer, he, he wrote some great stuff. Uh, because although Purcell is well known for church music, in fact, he wrote the music for 42 plays in the final six years of his life. So he was writing, churning out music for plays. Purcell was writing music for operas. It weren't really operas because the performers spoke the lines and then people on stage who were minor characters would sing a song for the main characters. This must have been quite bizarre to watch. So a maid would step forward and for the duration of the song, become the main character and sing the song and then would step back in the background. So they were, these, were, these were hugely successful theatrical performances. For a paying audience, this wasn't music for the court, it wasn't music for the church, it was music for a paying audience. And it's, it's fantastic stuff. And it's, it's often perceived as classical music, but you know, it's just popular music. And some of it's pretty funky. This tune, it's called the Curtain Tune from Time of Athens. Apparently going to the theatre in the 17th century was quite a social event. You'd go up and get a pie and a pint at the bar and there'd be like loose women around, people would be flirting and chatting. It was like a, a party, a big party. And then when it was time for the play to start, they, they, instead of ringing a bell, they'd play some music. The curtain tune was the, the, the music that was played before the curtain went up. So people would be coming back from the bar 
finishing off their, their, their pies and giggling and stuff. So this music was it's almost like background music. It was almost just to say, it's time to sit down and watch the play. Okay, let's listen to some Funky Purcell. And that was the curtain music from Timon of Athens by Purcell with the most amazing rhythm section played by bass stringed instruments. Tom, major musicians were able to write for theatre and sell broadside ballads, but that surely would only be in big urban environments, typically in London. What happened elsewhere? Yeah. What was going on in music? Well, the further north you go and west you go, so further away from London, in fact, uh, you kind of go back in time almost, almost back through the Middle Ages and in the, the north, in northwest Scotland and Western Ireland, you're really thinking about an Iron Age society where the, the, the rule of the king was pretty flimsy and local chieftains uh, ruled the roost. And these were often like clan chiefs where the, the uh, with whom the, the people felt a, a family, so the McDonald's, the McLeods, or the O'Connors, they had a, almost like a family connection with their chief. Uh, these chiefs had a retinue, and among the retinue would be a, a harper, or in Scotland, a piper. And these people would uh, play at funerals and weddings and for dancing, for celebrations. And often the, the, the job was passed down from father to son, so the McCrimmons of Skye were a very famous piping family. But also in Scotland, there were harpers who were uh, attached to the, the households of clan chiefs. And they played a, a small harp, which is called a clarsach. And we have one of those in the National Museum of Scotland, uh, which surprisingly perhaps has metal strings. Normally, for example, violins had gut strings in the old days, which were replaced by steel in the harp. But the, the Celtic harp seems to be metal originally. It's quite difficult to imagine that they could produce a, a consistently and strong wire in the, in the 1500s, but apparently they could. And they, the instruments have a beautiful sound, a little bit like a hammer dulcimer, very haunting sound. And we can hear an example now by uh, Scottish band Coronach. <laughs> Thank you. 
When it comes to harpists, of course, the, the greatest and most celebrated harpist is uh, Turlo O'Carla, an Irishman who was born uh, 351 years ago, which makes him a contemporary more or less of Vivaldi. And uh, his father was a blacksmith at, at the household of the McDermott Rowe family. And it looked like Turlo would become a blacksmith too, but he got smallpox and uh, became blind. And the, the woman of the household, Mrs. McDermott Rowe, paid for him to be trained as a harper. It was always a job a blind person could do. So Mrs. McDermott Rowe paid for his education as a harpist, and also when he was 21, gave him a horse and a guide, and they set off up and down Ireland, performing at big houses for weddings and for dancings and for funerals and various celebrations. As I said, he journeyed from one end of the island to the other, composing, and he must have, you know, he must have been almost everywhere several times. And he was so popular that it was said that people would delay the wedding until Caroline could make it. And uh, Caroline wrote loads and loads of tunes and loads and loads of songs. The songs are not that well known these days, but uh, he also wrote lots of songs. Virtually all of his pieces um, are, you know, in honour of someone or someone's name because they were to, to honour that person. Here is a piece called Captain O'Kane, and it's played on the Irish harp by Aria Frankfurter. that I was always aware of was The Beggar's Opera, written by John Gay. Mm -hmm. And it was mm -hmm. always said that it made the rich gay and gay rich. Rich was the name of the impresario, the guy, producer, who could put up the money for it. Yeah, Beggar's Opera, 1728, as we all know. Uh, there's a bit of confusion about the name. It was, the words were written by John Gay. The music was based on 69 tunes that the audience already knew. These were like popular hits of the day. Uh, very much like a jukebox musical today, like Mamma Mia or We All Rock You, with people probably could sing along, Green Sleeves is in there, Lily Baroos, and tunes from, from, from opera too, and Vivaldi, and there were classical tunes in there too. So it was, and they're very short, it's, it's a great story about a highwayman, like a highwayman hero who gets caught. And so it's a rollicking good story, and really great music. It's also very enjoyable to listen to, because the pieces of music are often very short, maybe only 30 seconds a minute. So it's like snatches of songs, so there's no time to get bored with a long tune, you know. The whole opera is quite long, about three hours maybe. And it's, a very, it's also a very good source of tunes, especially Scottish tunes. There are about 12 or so tunes that came from Scotland. 
and it was it was a huge huge hit uh, it was performed like hundreds of times and there's lots of merchandise connected to it uh, Polly who is the jailer's daughter was was the sort of pinup girl of the, of the early 18th century theater world and you could buy fans with their picture on like to fan yourself in the theater and playing cards with a picture on there was there's a lot of lots of merch to uh, you know to go along with the uh, the, the hit the hit musical and it was kind of sort of in a very modern world Beggars Opera is a really good source of information about music from the previous 200 years, probably. And we do a song which is called The Broom of the Cowden Nose. The Broom of the Cowden Nose. The broom is the plant, a yellow plant. And the Cowden Nose is a place in Scotland. And the main person in the song says, I wish I was at home again to milk my father's yows. So that she wants to be back at home again, milking her father's ewes, her female sheep. Which is a strange ambition, but, um, <laughs> which we know the tune from from the Beggars Opera, and we play it in quite an upbeat way. And it's coming up now. A blithe was I, till come hard to see my swain come o'er the hill. He skipped the burn and he flew to me. I met him with good will. I neither one. The Jehu her lamb While his flock near me lay He gathered in my sheep at night And cheered me all the day Oh, the broom, the bonny, bonny broom The broom of the cold and now I wish I were at home again To milk my daddy's yoke I were at home again to milk my daddy's yow. Another thing, maybe, at the, about the Beggar's Opera is that English heroes are often baddies, you know, against the law. We don't like authority, maybe, or we don't like unjust authority, especially. So Robin Hood is the great medieval hero, and it's also satirical about refined society. So these people who are thieves are, are sort of aping the nobles, the upper class. So it's kind of a satire on upper class manners and hypocrisy, you might say. So it's, it makes jokes about corruption in the government. You know, it's a kind of a making fun of the establishment. So it's not just the fact that the hero is a high woman, it's also the fact that the whole opera, the whole piece is criticising or laughing at the establishment, the authorities. It really does echo today. Yeah. Which sort of brings me round to the last point I wanted to, to talk about, was while there is so much music available and so much of it is good, why do you think it's important or interesting to keep old stuff why do you keep playing it? <laughs> well, it's, it's easier than writing new stuff. I mean, <laughs> practically, that's a joke. Um, the kind of music we play is traditional music. We play mostly Scottish dance music. And there are, you people occasionally write new tunes, but people always use old tunes and they're always digging around for old tunes, and something in the 18th century more so. 
country dancing was very, very popular at that time. And a lot of the tunes come from that time. So it's very fertile ground. That's the that's we use it. And they're good tunes. It's not been preserved deliberately. Scottish musicians have used modern tunes, American tunes, used tunes from all over, but they've also used tunes from, from way, way back, from several hundred years back. They weren't playing these tunes to preserve them, they were just playing them because they were good tunes. And perhaps also because they'd always been connected to their dances. Playing music is probably the best way to preserve it. I like period performances of Baroque music, but it can be quite dry, you know, like you can't clap at the end of each bit, for example, you know, and it's performed quite seriously. There's not much information. I think this music, early music, could be played in a much more approachable, more easily digested way. I don't, I don't think if you preserve something too cautiously, it can get dried up and left in the back of the shelf. I think it has to be kept modern by being played in a modern way, maybe in modern instruments, or more modern instruments, and played more, more rhythm, you know? I mean, it's already quite rhythmic, but it could be exaggerated slightly. It's, it's rhythmic nature. I don't think it should be preserved mass began and yeah, people get a bit precious about performing on, on old instruments, and I feel like that's a very good idea. Tom, you mentioned old instruments. What sort of instruments does your band Dagda play? Well, we don't play the music on early instruments. Uh, we play on modern instruments, although the fiddle, for example, hasn't changed much. But there are inherent problems with old instruments, I think. A harpsichord sounds great, but you have to tune it ahead of each performance, as far as I can see. I suppose pianos did too. The lute, when I've heard lute with a chamber orchestra, I can never hear it at all. And also lutes don't stay in tune. Uh, it's kind of a technical point. Lutes are tuned by a peg like a violin. They don't have machine heads. And someone said of the lute, people who play the lute spend half the time tuning the instrument and the other half playing out of tune. They don't stay in tune and they're very quiet. I think there's also a problem with the lute. Well, it's not a problem. The guitar you can strum. The lute strings are quite far apart. You can't, you're kind of going, playing on a plucky sort of way rather than strumming or not. That's not a drawback, but it's, you can do both on the guitar. You can pick a guitar and you can strum it. You can only pick it. So basically the guitar is a better instrument. Some old instruments to me sound quite nasty. The hurdy-gurdy, uh, bagpipes, but there's bagpipes and bagpipes. Uh, the the Ulin pipes, the Irish pipes sound fantastic. The Northumbrian pipes are also very nice. The, the other thing about it, actually, the hurdy-gurdy and the bagpipes is they're loud. I mean, they're designed for, or designed for playing outdoors, especially probably by street musicians in the hurdy-gurdy to attract a crowd, you know, they, their loudness is, was an advantage. Bagpipes were weapons of war as well. I mean, they were, they were supposed to be loud, but that's not necessarily a, an attractive feature instrument. Other instruments sounded, I think, terrific, sounded fantastic, but they, they're practical, a practical problem. There's an instrument called the chalumo, which was like a, an early clarinet. So it looks a bit like a recorder, actually. It's a wooden instrument, but has a reed rather than a, a fiddle. And I think it had a range of just over an octave, which means if you're playing them, you had to have a set of them. You have a set of shallow to play in different pitches. But it's a beautiful instrument. And there's a, a band from Scotland called Coronach, who recorded lovely old Scottish music. And, and this particular tune is called Down in Yon Bank, and it's played on the cello which Brilliant, let's hear it.
Tom, you and your band Dagda have played and recorded many tunes over the years. Do you have a favorite tune or a favorite musical theme that we could finish with? So on the theme of Outlaws as Heroes, there's a tune I like very much called Turpin Hero, but Dick Turpin, the, the highwayman from the early 18th century. This is maybe an example of, of a tune which we've adapted and it's played on a real wide variety of instruments. It's played on accordion and an instrument from Ukraine called Dombra. It's a little bit like a balalaika and guitar and drums. I think it's one of the things I like best of the things we've recorded. This is thanks to the great Sheila Katsur, the great arranger of music. Just before we play the last tune, Tom, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for all the wonderful stories and great thoughts and smashing music. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you very much.